Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer. On tonight's show, we see if house price warrior AMP Capital Shane Oliver has become less concerned about a house price collapse. And then I test out the claim that office slash commercial real estate is in trouble with Centurion's Jason Hulich, who says, N-O, no. And then our coal-faced property expert this week is Rate My Agents Mark Armstrong, who reveals just how happy or unhappy sellers are right now, and he tells us whether this is a seller's market or a buyer's market right now as well. Without any further ado, let's cross to Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. Well, as I said, we're catching up with Shane Oliver, and Shane, in the past, in the recent past, uh, was a little worried about the uh, prospect for house prices such that even Chris Joy put him in the grizzly bear class. Shane Oliver, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. Great did to you, be here. Did you notice that Chris Joy put you in the, he actually said the grizzly Shane Oliver. Well, I, I'm going to frame that because most people say that I'm perennially bullish yeah. and describe me as AMP's grizzly Shane Oliver. So <laughs> I'll just wheel that out every time someone criticises me as being too as being too bullish. Yeah. No, I, I laughed so at that So he's done one. me a favour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I must admit, I, I've, I've always thought if you're a bear, you're more like a yogi bear rather than a grizzly bear. I think so. I think so. <laughs> All right, mate. Let's... let's Gummy bear. I like gummy bear. <laughs> yeah, gummy bear. That's that's more like you too. Uh, let's let's get serious now. Um, you, you you did have a worst case scenario uh, view on the house pr house price uh, scenario. Um, what are you thinking now? Well, the worst case I think got blown out of the water by the JobKeeper. Uh, bank payment holiday and various other things that uh, came along soon after I put that note out. So the worst case was for unemployment to go north of 20% for price and, and that to put uh, big pressure on the property market with property prices falling around 20% or so. Now, JobKeeper, I think, has kept a lot of people in jobs, kept the money flowing. We've also had an increase in job seeker, which has helped, but not, not the major factor. We've also seen the bank payment holiday. So a lot of the things that were going to give that worst case scenario haven't happened or have been headed off. Um, in the meantime, though, I think we're still seeing, uh, going to see elevated unemployment for a while longer. So once JobKeeper does come to an end, that might lead to some problems for some households. We've also seen a big hit to immigration levels, which will act as a negative on, on uh, demand for housing. And then finally, we've seen the weakness in the rental property market, which might put some pressure on investors. So all of those things suggest we've still got some downside in prices ahead of us, but I don't think it's going to be that worst case scenario I originally had of 20%. In just ahead of the release of uh, the May uh, unemployment numbers, um, if they come through, I should ask you, what are you expecting? And then if they come through better than what, you and the consensus expecting, would that change your view on what might happen to house prices? Well, what I'm expecting, I don't have a lot of confidence in because, I mean, on the one hand, you can argue that there's still been some weakness in the jobs market and therefore we've factored in a decline in employment of around 70,000, taking the unemployment rate towards 7%. 
But by the same token, uh, we've seen out of the US, we've seen out of Canada, we saw a month ago that the jobs figures haven't been as bad as feared. So maybe I'm too negative going into this. I think at the end of the day, JobKeeper and JobSeeker are doing a fantastic job of stopping the headline unemployment rate going up too much, which was precisely what they were partly designed to do. They were designed to provide a bridge across this coronavirus chasm, so to speak. Um, and they've done that. They've kept a lot of people in employment. Um, uh, when people have got JobSeeker, uh, they haven't had to look for another job, so that's kept them out of the labour market and kept the headline unemployment rate down. Uh, don't forget, people were talking about 10% unemployment, 15% unemployment. I think that's largely been headed off. And so those things have done a good job there. I, what though I think the problem is, economists have, is trying to work out precisely how all those things interact. And that, I think, has proven very difficult. The truth picture will probably only become clear later this year when JobKeeper ends and JobSeeker goes back to a, a lower rate and the normal rules around JobSeeker return, then we'll get a handle as to what the true unemployment picture is. And I suspect it's going to be higher, um, but it's probably going to be around 8%, um, not the 15%, not the 10%. So if you imagine if we didn't have any of these things, the unemployment rate might have gone up to say, let's say 12% uh, presently. And uh, as the economy comes back, and it's coming back quicker than even I thought it would, probably quicker than you thought it would. I mean, look at most economic data. So a lot of jobs are coming back. As soon as I go out there and spend, if I go into a retail shop and spend, that shop was closed a month ago. Now it's open. I'm, I'm talking here from experience. And the lady in there is trying to sell me some winter clothing was saying she's just flat out. And there was a queue of people in front of me uh, for me to get to pay for my, my jacket. And there's a queue behind me. Um, so people have been employed again, and that takes them off JobKeeper, off JobSeeker, or you know, off the unemployment lines, wherever they happen to be, um, getting employed again. So as employment comes back, therefore, I think the, the true unemployment rate is now coming back down. So probably got up to 12 15%. Now it's probably coming back down, regardless of what we see for the May figures. I think the true number is probably trending down. By the time we get to October, it's probably around 8% or so, um, which is great, nowhere near as high as it could have been, um, but that's still going to lead to a little bit of stress for some households. Mm. Shane, you know, you, you and I both know that there are negative types out there who you could, if you want to be nasty, call them doomsday merchants, and they don't like to be called that. They would probably call themselves realists, but these realists have seen their very negative uh, forecast on house prices and their, their view that there'd be a collapse of, of property uh, uh, prices and the sector for quite some time and they've been wrong for a long time. Um, if as a consequence of all this stimulus, we see very strong growth in 2021, are these people who are, let's call them, in the nicest possible way, doomsday merchants, are they going to have to be waiting again a long time before a collapse comes, which would probably be linked to a conventional recession where unemployment goes to very high levels and governments and central banks aren't able to respond like they have this year? That's probably the case, and that's probably going to turn out to be the way, the way it goes. Uh, I, I still see prices coming down. They have come down already, and they're continuing to come down this this month, according to the core logic data, which seems to have been resurrected on a daily basis. Um, 
that I, I think the Falls National will be, will be in the range of 5 to 10%. If that happens, we just go back to where we were around the middle of last year. We just give up some of that recent gain and then we'll start to rise again as immigration comes back, as we've got low interest rates, as the economy recovers, uh, house prices will rise again. Um, but we've seen this story now for a long time, uh, particularly starting, I think, around 2003. People saying there was too much debt uh, in, amongst Australian households. House prices were way high by global standards. There's going to be a crash. And I can agree with some elements of that. I, and I can agree there is a problem with too much household debt in Australia. I, I do agree that Australian house prices are high by global standards. And that makes it very, uh, yeah, affordability is not is nowhere near as good as it could be for younger Australians trying to get into the property market. In fact, it's quite poor. But to get a property crash, you really need a situation which triggers Australians uh, being forced to sell their homes in mass uh, at a time when there's no buyers and therefore prices come crashing down. And I, I think it's still hard to see that, you know, where you get a 30% fall or a 40% fall, it still seems hard to see that. But I think in two years' time, if we haven't seen that, if all we see is a 5 to 10% fall and then we go off again, um, I think the, the what you call the doomsday doomsayers will still be back again. They'll still be saying that Australian housing is expensive. They'll still be saying that household debt is high because you can say those things. So the story will just keep going on like a broken record as it has for the last uh, the last 16 years. Yeah, and I guess, Shane, the, the, the threat to, to, to the housing sector might come... Yeah, and I know one economist, uh, Michael Knox up at Morgan's, uh, said that there's a possibility that we could see a bit of a rerun of the Roaring Twenties because of so much stimulus, um, and particularly if there's not a second wave infection, all the stimulus could create a lot of economic growth. And over the next two or three years, we might see inflation come back, we might see interest rates start to rise, and that could trigger um, some real problems for those people who are carrying too much debt, particularly, I guess, if there's not strong economic growth at the same time. It's like there is growth, but if a lot of that growth is also inflationary. We might get back to a more conventional situation where a recession comes because of higher interest rates. I could be, but I reckon that's a fair way off. I think the analogy to the Roaring Twenties is one that we can't ignore because just imagine how people were feeling in 1918 or 1990, they were, 1919. They were probably feeling kind of depressed. There would have been a lot of people out there. Um, there wasn't as many economists back then, but there might have been a few out there saying, oh, gee, this is going to change things forever. You know, growth won't return. And then lo and behold, along comes the 1920s and it's a roaring decade. Um, so that's the way things often happen, that they end up surprising. You know, out of misery comes something which was quite good. Out of World War Two came yeah. the, the post-war years, which were fantastic. And the Spanish so flu is, as well, Shane. Sorry? And the Spanish flu as well in, in 1918. That's right. Hmm. So, you know, in 1918-19, there was that, that misery around Spanish flu. But if you got yourself too carried away, saying people were never going to spend again, no one wanted to mix in public again, um, no one's going to travel again. And then, of course, you missed out on the roaring 20s when, of course, the exact opposite happened. Um, so, yeah, you can't ignore that analogy, um, I don't think. But by the same token, I think it's going to take a while before we use up the spare capacity that's currently around, and therefore it's going to take a while before interest rates really take off again. Like, if you imagine the situation today, it's a bit like the unemployment rate. You're trying to get a handle on what the true unemployment rate is. It's the same with the cash rate. The RBA, normally in a recession, cuts the cash rate, say, 
400 basis points or something like that. They've only been able to cut 0.5% because we've now banged up against the, what they call the lower bound of 0.25%. They don't want to go negative for good reason. But if there wasn't that constraint, they probably would have gone down to minus 3% or something like that, minus 3.5%. And it would take a while to get down to that level. We may not get down there till the end of this year. And then we'd start to gradually rise. But by the time we get back to 0.25%, I reckon would be about two and a half years time before we get back to that point. And therefore, given that none of that's happening, we're stuck at the 0.25% level, it stands to reason that the RBA isn't cutting. That's because we're at the lower bound. If they were cutting, we'd be going down. They'd only be in a position to start raising rates again, probably in about three years' time. So, yeah, I mean, somewhere out there, there could be higher interest rates, which could cause problems for households. But I reckon it's a fair way away before we get there. The other thing is that the Reserve Bank, we had this debate a few years ago, the Reserve Bank's not going to mindlessly raise interest rates to some preconceived notional level, that it, normal level it should go to. It will do it very gradually. If there is a problem with inflation picking up, it will raise interest rates 0.25%, see what happens, 0.25%, see what happens. It won't just keep jacking them up to 13% or whatever, um, causing a crash in the economy, because that's not what it would want to be doing. It would just want to be keeping inflation under control. So therefore, I don't think it would raise rates so far that it causes a massive property crash. Well, Shane Oliver, as always, it's great to catch up, mate. And I hope you're right this time. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks, Peter. <laughs>
um, and half that is just rent free, so it's gone, and half of it's deferred rent, so that's made up over the rest of the term of your lease. Mm. Yeah. So if you're a big company and you're over $50 million turnover, it doesn't apply, yeah. and you're still on the hook to pay your rent. So having mm. those big tenants really helps. Yeah, flow. and so, so what you're saying is that as a company, you are more exposed to bigger tenants, 50 million plus, therefore you, you're not being pressured revenue-wise from the rents you collect. Correct, correct. So those, those the smaller tenants probably make up 5% or less of our portfolio. Mm. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of the outlook, of course the economic outlook's going to be important, but you know, given what you've said already about the, the nature of your tenants, are you expecting 2021 to be a much better year than 2020? You'd think so. It'd be hard yeah. to be too much worse as a, as a country, yeah. as a, as a globally. But um, yeah, if you look at the, I think the big thing is the sectors, and each sector is a bit different, right? Mm. So if you look at something like probably the hottest sector coming into COVID and coming out of COVID has been logistics and industrial. Yeah. And yeah, we've got the largest sector specific. And these are businesses that, that's like supply groups like Amazon and all the online Correct. businesses like So these Kogan are all the big warehouses, basically. Mm. Um, and yeah, we've got the largest listed um, pure play industrial read on the ASX, mm. um, Centurion Industrial uh, REIT. Um, and that market is strong. Mm. And what's happened with, obviously with COVID is e-commerce, um, it's probably jumped five years ahead of where it was with take mm. up because of COVID. And it means it needs these warehouses to pump out the goods to consumers, right? So you've got really strong tenant demand, and then you've also got very strong uh, investor demand for industrial as mm. an asset class. So you're seeing some transactions take place pr uh, post COVID, so in the last you know, few weeks, that are at yields and cap rates that are the same as or lower than they were pre-COVID. So mm. the demand has increased for industrial property. Mm. And it's seen as a very safe sector to be in. So it's become like a defensive asset. Very now. defensive. Mm. And just the views on e-commerce and its take-up has really helped um, help the demand for that asset class. Mm. So then you move to something like healthcare, which we've been in for the last year or two. So we own a lot of medical centres, day surgeries and the like. Um, so when elective surgeries were, were cancelled for a while there, mm. um, obviously a lot of those shut down. But because of the backlog, once they reopened up, you know, they've probably got 18 months of um, makeup of those mm. surgeries. So they were going to be trading really well. So again, healthcare as an asset class hasn't been affected um, at all. And, and there's still a lot of demand for those and assets. And obviously you're not getting demands for rent relief from those... No, those again, you know, if there's a cafe in the medical yeah. centre or yeah. something like that, but mm. all the big groups like the Helios's, um, and a lot for the not-for-profits and so forth, they're back operating and they're busier than they've ever been. Mm. Um, then you look at something like Office. Um, you know, there's been a lot of negative press if you, you know, read the paper, the death of Office, and no one's going back to office space, yeah. which you know, we don't really agree with at all. Um, so w why don't you agree? Uh, personally, I do too, yeah. but it's a gut feeling that, that people will want to get back in the workplace. A lot of bosses won't want. Look, I, I think some bosses will look at their staff and say, you know, so and so and so are pains in the butt. Yeah. They can work from home, sure, but everybody sure. else I want back exactly, in the office. Exactly, exactly. Look, you, you will do that. Look, I, <laughs> I, I want most of our guys back in the office. Right. Um, but um, if you look at it, if you look at it, um, there's a lot of reasons, right? We're social creatures. You think about working from home. You know, if you've got a home office, it's mm. very easy. Mm. But a lot of young staff are flatting. They've got two flatmates. They're yeah. at the kitchen table, and working from home for three months is not that easy, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so. We're very social. The whole collaboration piece is a lot harder online. 
Um, look, the tech through COVID's been pretty good, and we've got great systems at Centuria, but you, you start to get sick of it. It does drop out. Some people's Wi-Fi aren't as strong as others' signals. Mm. But I think the two big things that, um, that I think are, are happening is, one, activity-based working mm. was a great thematic for the last 10 years. So if you, if you go back... Um, you know, 20 years ago, everyone had an office and, you know, you, you had about 20 square metres per space, of space, per employee, yeah. right? Activity-based working came in, okay, and probably um, now it's closer to 10 metres, 8 to 10 metres. So basically over the last 25 years, well, you needed 20 metres per person before, now you need about 10, so it's halved. Now, in the last 25 years, office, the office sector's been performed extremely well. Mm. So even though space is half what people actually needed, right? Secondly, with the whole COVID play, a lot of the big fit-outs, um, nearly all big fit-outs were going activity-based pre-COVID. And what that meant is you probably needed about 30% less space than a traditional fit-out that wasn't activity-based. So activity-based is desk sharing, mm. um, end of every day, everyone packs away their, their um, computers into their lockers, next day they come, sit wherever they want. Yeah. And because people are on leave, people are traveling, people are sick, whatever, you need about 30% less space. Mm. Um, I think what you will see with new fit-outs post-COVID is there'll be less groups doing activity-based. Now, what that will mean is they'll need 30% more space, mm. right? So um, I think net-net with, you know, there will be some more people working from home, but net-net, I don't think there'll be much difference in the office, office mm. um, take-up at all. Mm. I wonder if, if you have, uh, as tenants, those sort of nerdy IT businesses, yeah that's where you might see a little bit more working from yeah. home because a lot of those people don't contribute anything to anything else but, but what they yeah. do in their little yeah. uh, cubicle. Yeah. Look, a lot of them were set up from working from home and, mm. and that, could, that could expand for those groups. But yeah. I think one of the big things, I read an interesting article um, from the CEO of Brookfield, who's one of the, probably the biggest office owner in the world, yeah. and um, it was about culture. And it was just so hard to get that culture right online as mm. compared to having the office, having the office <coughs> meetings and, and, and so forth. And I agree with that. So, mm. um, look, I don't think it's the death of office yeah. by any means. It's interesting. I, I read the, the book um, by Mark Randolph, who uh, was a founder of Netflix, yeah. co-founder. And uh, he, he made the point that there was a great um, IT worker whose girlfriend had moved to San Diego from where they were in Santa Cruz. Yeah. And he said, I want to work from uh, San Diego. And Randolph just said, well, uh, if you um, actually think you can be as productive in San Diego, go there. Yeah. The guy didn't go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he actually made the objective observation that he couldn't be uh, as productive. And, and the other thing is the younger employees coming through, so the, the guys and girls out of, out of university and so forth, I think it makes it harder to learn and, and also mentor and so forth mm. if they're not in the office soaking it up, yeah. listening to conversations and just being <coughs> part of it. So I think there are a lot of um, negatives from not not being in, in the physical office space. Yeah. Uh, but look, things will change. There'll be more flexi space and there'll be there are other thematics that will flow through. Um, but I think we'll still be coming to offices over the next 20 years. As you well know, Jason, I very soon I asked the questions you actually put forward as a possibility. Um, but this one is interesting. Yeah. So Centurion's unlisted property funds are leading the top 10 performing core funds. Gee, I'm surprised you actually tell me that. Yeah. From the Property Council of Australia for 15 consecutive quarters, how does your unlisted offer, offering differ from others? Yeah. 
I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you are. <laughs> but look, the bottom line is, you've you got a good run on the board. Yeah. I guess the question is, how come? Yeah, look, look we have got a really good track record. So the, the index that you spoke about, that, that sort of compares us to our competitors in that unlisted space. And explain what unlisted means. Yeah, for, yeah. so unlisted is a, a property fund that's not listed on the stock exchange. So it's not one of the big REITs, like mm. one of our industrial and <coughs> commercial REITs. So it's either a single asset fund, so mm. we might go buy an office building. Yeah. So you building, often done, done that in the The building part. we're in was one of our funds some yeah. time ago. So we buy an office building, we'll have investors come in, yep. mum and dad investors, super funds and so forth, um, and we'll own that asset for five years. Every month they get a, a um, share of the rental, so they mm -hmm. get a return coming into the bank account every month, and then after five years we'll sell it, um, and hopefully we've- Or not, because some of you don't. Or not extended, yeah. if investors mm -hmm. want to extend, um, and then we'll sell it hopefully for a, a profit, because we've added value by refurbishing it, getting the rents up, getting better tenants into the building, mm. um, and then they you know, possibly get a profit as well. Yeah. Or it could be a diversified fund, so we might have a group of assets, a portfolio of assets that these investors uh, invest into. But the big thing is it's not on the, it's not on the stock exchange, yeah. it's, it's an unlisted fund. So why have they done well? Uh, look, they've done well, I think, for a number of reasons. I think if you look at a lot of the funds that we've put together, um, we've gone into areas where we've sort of picked um, the location um, before it took off. So we've gone into places, um, suburbs or precincts, something like the Australian um, ATP, Australian Technology Park, just mm -hmm. on the fringe of Sydney, yep. um, between here and the airport. Now we bought the first commercial building in there that wasn't government owned, mm. and back then it was Redfern. Mm. Um, you know, the, the a lot of the big tenants would not go into, into that location. It was sort of very fringy. Mm. The rents were really low. So when we looked at the first asset in that park, the rents were lower than we were getting in Parramatta or Chatswood. And this was one station out of Central. Yeah. So we thought so close to the city, at some stage that park's got to re-rate yeah. and there'd be a lot of demand to get into that park. So we bought the first asset very cheap. We bought three more assets very cheap in that park. So we had four office buildings, biggest owner in the park. And then the government put the park up for sale. Um, ourselves and, and Mervac bid for it and won it. Mervac then built CBA's new headquarters out there, 100,000 metre building. Mm. And then some of the very large institutional investors came into the park. By that time, it was called Everly. Um, you had AMP, Australian Super, Mervac, mm. all these big institutions investing into the park. Yeah. It became institutional grade. The rents doubled, you know, the yields reduced mm. and the values went up dramatically. Okay, so and we've been watching you for a number of years sure. and, and you, you've seen seem to be good at picking a building, like yep. the example you gave, and then they do well. Um, is the, Then about a year or so ago, you were saying the supply of those potential buildings are a lot harder to find. Sure. After coronavirus, do you think that there, there may well be some uh, opportunities because people are saying, oh, well, you know, might disagree with yeah, you, sure. less people want to be in office space, so therefore you'll see opportunities. We haven't seen anything come out as yet, yeah. um, and there's a lot of there's some industrial transactions happening, but there's not a lot in office over yeah. the last month or two. We think there will be some opportunities, and where they probably will come up is assets that need some work. And this mm. has been where we're very good. We've got a big in-house team for asset management, property management, leasing. Mm. Um, so where a lot of groups would outsource that to one of the agencies, we yep. have all those teams in-house. And what it means is we can buy buildings like this building, which we bought with 20% vacancy, need a lot of work to the, to the foyers and the arcade. So we came in, we spruced it all up, and we leased up 20% of the building. Mm. So I think where there'll be opportunities is where the building needs a lot of work because it might have a lot of vacancy coming up into a harder market mm. post-COVID. And I think they are the ones we will be trying to target. Mm. So um, buildings with either existing vacancy or short lease terms, 
where the owner's scared of they might lose a tenant, they might have a lot of work to do to reposition that building to get it back up to scratch. Okay, so going forward, um, what are the parts of the property market do you think look good yep. and the ones that will, will be or remain challenged? Sure. So, uh, look, as I said before, industrial, we expect to keep powering yeah. along. Yeah. Uh, you know, our listed rate, um, you know, the, the, uh, the demand for that's really, really strong mm. over the last couple of months as we've come, sort of coming out of COVID. Um, I think office, there'll be opportunities, but we'll have to pick the markets and, yeah. the, and the assets um, because there'll be some assets you just won't want to be in and others where there will be opportunities. Um, healthcare is that new sector that um, we really like. Um, so we've got 50 healthcare assets. And it's new for you in a sense. Yeah, so we've only, we, we bought a majority stake in a, a healthcare company called Heathley um, just over a year ago. So 50 assets around the country, everything from um, medical centres, day hospitals, private hospitals, uh, dementia care, things like that. And obviously with the ageing population yeah. and chronic disease, there's just a, that's a no-brainer and mm. we think we'll get a lot of growth out of that that sector. Look, retail's the tough one and, and look, I'm glad that we're not in retail. Mm. Um, it is a difficult, it had structural issues coming into COVID and that's been you know, increased obviously coming out. Um, so I'm glad we're not in there. There'll be some people that will make some good money out of retail, mm. but there'll be a lot of assets that really suffer coming out, just with the whole e-commerce thematic. Okay, Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jason Hillich, CEO at Century. Well, a few weeks ago, we checked out with Mark Armstrong, CEO of Rate My Agent, to see how the sector was going. Uh, Mark was not as negative as some people were, uh, negative about the, the sector. He copped a few brickbacks uh, in the age of feedback TV and feedback media. But at the same point, um, he's, he's got the courage of his convictions and he's back again. Mark, thanks for coming on the program. Pleasure, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anyone who's an optimist when doomsday merchants want things to fail always gets bagged as being a spruker or something like that. <laughs> but Mark, what, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, look, we, we saw, you know, last time we spoke, Peter, we, we saw rapid growth in, in vendor happiness, you know, through 2019, a lot of sellers were getting prices above their expectation and were, and were very happy. And I think, you know, we, we always expected that happiness to level off in 2020. It was never going to continue those sorts of heights. And, and, and we saw in the, up until the end of Feb, we saw vendor happiness reasonably robust and holding its, its, its position. But then April, we saw it adjust. And, and as we all know, COVID is, is, is really what uh, uh, impacted the market in April. And we didn't see a massive adjustment. We saw it adjust down by 5% nationally. So it's still held, held reasonably firm. And I think we just still need to watch in the coming months to see really how much impact COVID has on the market, you know, between now and, and you know, the, the rest of the year. When you use the word happiness, how do you measure happiness? Yeah, more money. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a, uh, basically we measure happiness by, uh, we, we, get, we get thousands of reviews uh, at Rate My Agent. And, uh, and the last question we ask someone who's sold a property, who's posted a review, we simply ask them, is the price you achieved above, below, or in line with your expectations? So we, we link um, people who say that the price they sold for was above their expectations, well, they're happy, they're more likely to be happy, so they sold above. And, and that's, that's really the metric. It's a really powerful metric because it, it not only tells us that property's selling, but it's actually tell, it actually tells us how strong the market is and, and, and how well properties are selling. 
What do you do? Obviously, that's a part of your business, but you obviously would be looking at the other numbers that are out there. You know, I must admit, on Sundays and Mondays, I look to see auction clearance rates in places like Melbourne and Sydney as a bit of a barometer of what's going on. I presume you do the same kind of thing as well. Looking at other indicators, what are you? What is your conclusion about property markets at the moment? Yeah, look, to go on to, to auction clearance rates, I, I don't take a huge um, notice of auction clearance rates. or don't, 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 don't emphasise them as much. I mean, first of all, if we look at the, the entire market, auctions are really dominant in inner urban Melbourne and to a lesser extent, but still in inner urban Sydney. But, but the majority of property is not sold via auction. Um, so, so we've got to look at the broader market. The main one for me is, is around supply. I mean, supply and demand are, are the two natural things that we need to look for. And, and if we look at what happened in 2019, one of the reasons the market was so strong was because supply dropped by 20% throughout 2019. Um, there was uncertainty, you know, that we had an election in early part of the year and, and there was a bit of uncertainty around the market. So, so sellers really... Um, pulled back in 2019. So, so that was really one of the, the main reasons why we saw strong market growth in, in, in that year. We feel um, the unknown is, is where supply is going to go for the rest of 2020. If you had have asked me pre-COVID, I would have said that there's no doubt we're going to have one of the biggest spring markets we've had because those, those buyers who decided not to sell in 2019 will ultimately come onto the market. That's the unique thing about real estate is family units grow and fall, people die, people get married, people get divorced, people have kids, people leave home. That doesn't change regardless of what the economy is doing. The, the demand to move and transact property is always building. So that pent up demand of buyers who didn't sell in 2019 is always going to come to the market at some stage. Um, and we still feel reasonably confidently that, the, you know, Australia is handling COVID really well. And we feel that supply of, of property through that spring market is going to lift quite dramatically compared to 2019. So, so I think supply is a major factor. And, and, and do you think the buyers are going to be there looking for properties? Uh, I, I think there's that uncertainty. Uh, I, I think we've got to see a little bit more about how COVID really impacts the market, how quickly um, unemployment stabilises and, and people get back to work. Um, we suspect that, that uh, vendor happiness will adjust downward uh, in the second half of this year. Um, we don't expect it will be a dramatic fall, but it, it will it will certainly adjust. And, and that 5% drop in April is an early sign that we, we expect it to level off and, and drop. Uh, and that will be because the supply and demand curves turn the other way. Demand will soften um, and supply will lift. Where are the happiest vendors and where are the least happy vendors? Well, the happiest vendors uh, tend to be the people in markets where, where there's a higher level of, of affordability, you know, in markets where there's, we actually saw an increase in happiness in, in, in Queensland and, and WA um, in April. Now, WA is a, a bit of an extreme case because it had a very low base of vendor happiness to start with. So it was, it was the lowest, so it, it only grew by 1%. But we tend to see those regional markets and, and those those more um, you know um, uh, price uh, cheaper properties um, tend to stabilise and be a little bit happier. Um, and we saw the opposite. It, it was absolutely the 1.5 million dollar plus range in Melbourne and Sydney, 
Um, this is where we saw vendor happiness drop off a cliff. It, it fell by around um, around 20%. Um, compared to compared to the last report, so you know those, those top end properties tend to have a more volatile market. Demand can be more volatile in that market. We don't have a, a huge section of the population that can afford properties over one point five million dollars, uh, and we also have um, people who may well have had really strong growth in in, in dollar terms in two thousand and nineteen. And the adjustment, the psychological adjustment that, that they're needing to make now as the market softens a little bit in dollar terms can be quite a big adjustment that they have to go through. So that okay. $1.5 million market is a little bit okay. unstable. So for the people who are watching this who are thinking about selling their property, is it a good time to sell now or would you be a waiter? Would you wait for maybe getting to September or December quarter? Yeah, definitely wouldn't wait till spring. I mean, wait, it depends on the time frame. If you want to sell your property this year, this calendar year, get your property on the market now or, or you know, June, July, August, um, it would be the time to get your property on the market. You're still, you're, you're getting into the, you're selling in a market where there's still a reasonably low level of supply. There's not a lot of property out there. You're not competing with a lot of vendors. So absolutely very, very clear. June, July, August, if you're looking to sell in 2020. Um, if you're looking to buy, I feel that there'll be some good buying opportunities through September, October, November. Um, so seller's market through winter, buyer's market through spring. All right, Mark, is there any other factor out there that you think is really important that people should consider when trying to assess this market? I think that supply factor is the most important one. Is is getting if you're looking to sell, is getting into the market when you're not competing with other people. It's it, it's a very hard thing to do to to um, buck the trend. You know, everyone tends to oh no one else is selling, so I better not sell. Or no one else is buying, so I better not buy. But when no one else is selling, sell. When no one else is buying, buy. Um, I think it, it, it's it's a psychologically it's a hard thing for people to do. Um, but if, you, if you've got the courage to do it, that's certainly the right time to do it. Mark Armstrong from Rate My Agent, thanks for joining us. Pleasure.